Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, tell me all the things. Uh, yes. Well, uh, in the beginning of time, it was, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. It, I mean, happy uh, new week to you. I have started mm-hmm. my week by missing a work meeting, then having someone miss my work meeting, then two other work meetings. This is so so the highlight of my day. I mean, I can't even properly express how it's the highlight of my day. Happy President's Day. Mm. President of what we don't know, but for all you presidents out there, mm. happy day. <laughs> Happiest of days. And, and happy listener corner. Uh, we have a couple different things to talk about today. Uh, the first is from Tejas Kudva via YouTube. And uh, Tejas asked, when you're talking about games where you start at that same baseline and grow through play, isn't that any skill-based or point-by-based game? It's not my favorite, but a game such as Savage Worlds fits that description, since everyone starts with such a limited set of points, but advances take you in so many directions. I feel the original question is more talking like unlocking access to an to a flavorful upgrade path, like 5e's subclasses. Uh, so yes, yes and no. When we were talking about this, we were talking about D, how D&D, you choose several things when you start your character, and it makes you very different from any other character right from the start. So when I was talking about this in terms of a game system, I was talking about literally when you sit down to play, you are basically, except for maybe your name, are the same as every other character or very much the same. And then as play progresses, you gain more and more things. And so that was that was my question anyway. Are there games like that out there? And I'm sure there are. I just don't have any in my limited experience with you know other role playing games to know what that might be. Yeah, and, and it ends up becoming at some point it almost feels like a class. And and the question is how do you get there, right? Mm-hmm. And like Savage Worlds, for example, you may be very similar to another character because of the choices you make at your kind of after your character start um but you may and so you may just simply say like well i'm i'm you know i'm faster uh and i'm trained in the rifle in this particular way so that's you know how i'm known but but you start differentiating from the very beginning right and it's and i think the question is you know what what's that gradient right at what point are you all kind of level zero commoners or are you in some giant silo and in games like savage worlds you know if you choose to be any kind of magical person, then you make certain choices. You you turn that on as a sort of talent that you have. And now you're off to the races with with these particular things that no one else has, which is a little different than saying like, I'm a teacher, you're a, you know, I don't know, whatever else it is, you know, you're, you're a university student, we're playing this game together, we're essentially the same thing, but over time, we're going to acquire different things and make different choices, right? So I think that's, it's hard to yeah. pinpoint where that line is. Exactly. And that's what one of the reasons we're doing this look at other role-playing games and comparing them to D&D is so that we can talk about these concepts, about not just the game design of it, but the attractiveness of it to both new players and existing players and the different experiences that you might have with it. Yeah. And, and we will do that today. 
So thank you for that question. And the second comes from Shamaj22. It could be Shemage22 via YouTube, but we'll uh, we'll go from there. So has the Hasbro investor call indicates that they had an operating loss of 125 million for quarter four of 2022. And they thought it would be a good idea to spend how many more millions of dollars for a 30-second Super Bowl ad? Does this make sense to anyone else? Uh, well, we're going to talk about that investor call in our news segment, but it possibly does make sense to me. It all depends. Now, we can talk about the wisdom of business cases for spending loads of money on ads, but we really don't know for sure what the business and financial arrangement is between Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast and Paramount, the company that is actually producing and distributing the movie. Hasbro may not have spent a dime on that ad. We just, we don't know. Or half or now, three quarters. We you know, no idea, right? right? Yeah. Yeah, we, we just, we have no idea. Now, putting ads out for a game, is always one of those questionable things because when back when I was playing first edition, you could not buy that game in, in any local store. You had to go to a bookstore. You had to go to a specific store to find it, at least in my uh, memory. So putting out an ad in the newspaper for a game that you would have to go search out somewhere didn't make a heck of a lot of sense. But now that we have games in Target, now that we have box sets in Walmart. Now that there are places where people who don't know anything about the game may be wandering by, it would make more sense then to put ads in public spaces where brand recognition may be more likely to lead to sales. And we also have to remember now we're talking about a movie and not a game. So that's a whole different thing. And the Super Bowl target audience is different than a regular football game audience, which is different from right a streaming sitcom audience which is all all those different things so yeah. that that's that's a whole it's a whole big question but the answer is yes it makes sense depending yeah and clearly i mean in a lot of ways this is great news right because this you don't just say one person doesn't say at hasbro or at paramount oh i'm gonna create a super bowl ad right mm -hmm. That has to go through so many levels of discussion of what you're showing, why, what the demographic is, because it is an enormous spend. And so mm -hmm. that shows that there was belief that if you get this thing in front of people, they will come to it and that it's worth mm -hmm. showing to them, right? If this were that first D&D movie, I don't think we'd have a, 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 you know, a, a trailer showing up on, on the Super yeah. Bowl because I don't think people would have believed it in it enough if they'd seen it so so in a lot of ways this is a good indicator right and we'll have to see how it pans out um but but hopefully this is a very good sign and it's a very smart move because it's going to mean a ton of people seeing the movie and a ton of people recognizing dnd's relevance and 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 being interested in seeking it out right mm -hmm. yeah and and it all comes back to that monetization right if if wizards of the coast and hasbro want to turn dnd into a billion dollar brand there, there are a limited number of avenues to do that. One of them is a big blockbuster movie that makes a billion dollars, uh, you know, all on its own. Yeah. And so it's it, it would be interesting to know what the relationship is between Paramount and and Hasbro in this, and what the what the split is on you know worldwide ticket sales on all the different residuals and yeah merchandise, you know, uh, all of that, right? merchandising, all that, and so. In that case, ads may be very important to reach that goal if, if that's the hope. 
So it's a very good question and we could probably discuss it for the whole show, but we're not. We're going to move into our news and commentary section and talk about the new D&D movie trailer that just dropped from IGN FanFest. Uh, the link is in the show notes. You probably have seen it by now since the show drops a couple days after we record. But the it's a minute and a half at, uh, trailer. And the gist of it is the infamous raised dead questioning uh, stuff. Speak with dead. I'm sorry, speak with dead, right? You speak with dead and it it plays out the the parties trying to get information out of a corpse using the speak with dead spell. And it goes pretty much exactly. If you have a group that is into humor at, in any way, you have played this before. <laughs> um, so if you watch this and, you know, whether you're an experienced player or a new player or even a non-D&D player, if you can't appreciate that little bit that they did in that trailer, then I don't want you in my game <laughs> because we, my group literally three days ago was having a discussion about ex- this exact topic and it played out almost precisely as you saw in the trailer in our group. That's why I love speak with dead because it inevitably, you know, you start with like, okay, what will, you know, what do we ask? And Oh God, everybody's all over the place. Right. Then finally you come up with like, well, let's start with these two questions. You ask, you ask the first one, and the answer probably throws off what the next one should be. And then you're sitting there asking, and at some point, it's really easy for someone to ask a bad question, and then it just yeah. goes off to the races, right? It just derails completely, right. and it just and this is such a perfect capture of that, which shows that e- either the folks doing it understood D and D, or they brought in people mm-hmm. who do, right? And that's a great indicator. Yeah. I think Michelle Rodriguez recently shared that she had played uh, before the movie. And, you know, so there's there's a, an understanding that was there, yeah. hopefully not just at the actor level and director level, writer level, you know, but that's that's great. Right. The, the yeah. script clearly knew that this is the kind of thing that's going to resonate with the audience and how to communicate that effectively. And, and the scene is great. Right. It's really, really yeah. good looking undead that's popping up and, and yeah. with this great voice. It's an excellent scene. Yeah, it is. You know, when other movies or shows come out and people know I'm into D&D, come up to me and they say, is that what D&D is like? <laughs> and, you know, sometimes I'll have to say yes. Sometimes I'll have to say no. When, with this one, I'll have to say, yeah, this is literally my group and it's glorious. Uh, so check that out. Let us know what you think. But for me, it's two, uh, two big thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now to get to that earnings call that we have discussed already. Uh, Hasbro reported in this earnings call to investors that the direct business comprised of Magic D&D Beyond, Hasbro Pulse, and Magic Secret Layer was up 15% in 2022, which is no surprise to me. And we have to remember, of course, that this is an investor call, so all of the business and investory type things that you're going to hear, you can expect and have to take it with the, the grain of salt that it it uh, requires. What what did you see from this earnings call, Teos, that caught your attention? Yeah, and it, you know, in our show notes, we didn't focus on what we talked about. I forget it was last week or the one before that, but you know, recently there was there was as was mentioned in our question. You know, the the headline is really Hasbro losing a ton of money, uh, but mm-hmm. the parts here focus on on which parts did well, right? So D and D Beyond has grown in its number of users twenty percent since it was acquired in May. Uh, and some of this may be a little bit, you know, dressed up to make it seem positive and, and quiet any unrest that might be, you know, shareholders who've heard about this problem with the OGL and D&D Beyond cancellations and things like that. 
But overall, it seems, you know, at least the story that they're telling, and it's probably true, is that overall, you know, really strong growth that, that, that puts that behind them. And especially if they can gain users back, then it puts, things, puts that behind them. Um, overall, they said growth for Wizards of the Coast in digital gaming was 5%, outperforming the games market overall, which was largely flat to down. Sort of, you know, in a tough time, we did well. And then, mm -hmm. you know, this other part of us, Magic, Indie Beyond, Hasbro Pulse, et cetera, 15% up. So, you know, they're trying to highlight these positives. What's supremely interesting to me, and they also say tabletop revenues were up 12% behind Magic, digital declined 23%. So you can just see how confusing these numbers are of what part of it is up or down. And one of the things that for yet another quarter we didn't hear was just D&D &D isolated on itself. Mm-hmm. And that can only mean that it's not a huge number, right? Because they're right. not going to forgive. If they could say D&D, &D, you know, itself is up blah, they would have loved mm -hmm. to have said that, I think. Yeah. Uh, that is not said here. You know, mm -hmm. everything else is, is including some other portion. It's either how D&D &D Beyond grew right. or how Magic grew. It's not clear that, you know, what what D&D &D itself is doing. I find that fascinating. Yeah. And to get anyone to admit problems during an investor call is is a big thing and chris cox did say that they were too aggressive um in terms of their open gaming license yeah. and also too aggressive in the their 30th anniversary edition for magic but yeah we're, <laughs> I mean, we're going to focus on the open cards or whatever it was yeah exactly <laughs> uh so but they they talked about the open gaming license and saying that we misfired on updating our open gaming license a key vehicle for creators to share or commercial commercialize their D, D inspired content um, our best practice is to work collaboratively with our community gather feedback and build experiences that inspire players and creators alike it's how we make our games among the best in the industry we have since course corrected and are delivering a strong outcome for the community in game. Uh, so, you know, that's, it's all well and good. It, it's the nice spin on saying, boy, did we make a mistake? Hopefully we're, Survival we're in the process one. of correcting it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing, uh, about anything... these, you know, we, we make fun of, there was another kind of tweet, I think that highlighted some bit of investment speaking. Like it is important to realize this is investment speak. They are speaking mm -hmm. to folks who want to hear about the axiomatization of the fundamentalists, uh, you know, yeah. diagonal growth, fundamentalists. You know, it's just it's it's yeah. all full of a different language, just the same way that we would not explain to a new player things in the level of language that we could use with a friend who's been playing an RPG for 40 years. Right? It's just it is like a language. Right. And so you have to give a little bit of a pass on some of this stuff. And, and how this plays out, right? It is it is a community, it is an approach. And so they're just gonna say that. But in the end, what they're saying is, you know, what you can translate to is they had to acknowledge the mess up. That's a big deal. It's a thing they don't wanna do. Mm -hmm. um, they're overall saying that it's survivable and that they're on a path to, to, to being in a good place. The D&D Beyond has basically made an earnings per share contribution and then in the end it's positive, right? Um, and the, the mm -hmm. revenue growth has been commensurate with user growth. So adding more users to D&D Beyond is creating more revenue. So that's all positive for the acquisition. It's positive for where they're headed. 
you know, based on the idea that they are working with the community to improve things, which they are. So hopefully that's all positive for everyone. Uh, and we don't get a little too caught up in, in the you know, business speak of it, which mm -hmm. is just what's going to happen at these types of things. For sure. For sure. So speaking of monetization, uh, Tim Harford, friend of the show, uh, has put a new article up in the Financial Times where he's a columnist and talks about the challenge that role-playing games face with monetization. So Tim was on our show recently to talk about his podcast, Cautionary Tales and the Satanic Panic. Um, this article in the Financial Times is all about Hasbro, uh, the open gaming license a bit, and the RPG industry in general. And do you want to do you want to take take this on, Teos? Yeah, I mean, it's he, he, you know, he goes back to when he was a kid and he buys Dragon Warriors, his favorite game for 10 pounds, right? Because he's in England in the 1980s. And he says, you know, it was a cheap price then. But he thinks about the countless fun he's derived, the countless value, because since he's an economist, right, that has been provided by this mm -hmm. game to himself for this tiny price paid up front. And, you know, it really is. It's, it's a steal. And what do you do with that? And, and he compares it to football, right? Or any sport where, you know, really like you can't charge people millions of dollars for playing football. So how do you make millions off of football? And we see that actually football is hugely profitable. It's not by selling footballs and it's not by mm -hmm. charging you to play, but it's things like tickets to see famous people play. It's branded T-shirts, right? That not only do you buy the T-shirt once, but you keep buying the branded T-shirt over and over again, right? Uh, it's right. certainly true of me. I have a lot of T-shirts of my team. I'm wearing one under here now. Um, mm -hmm. TV subscriptions, bets, you know, all kinds of ways that things are monetized. And so he says, you know, Hasbro does a better job of squeezing money out of gamers, but it faces the same challenge. You can download the rules free of charge or pay about $25 for a starter set. For less than 200 you can own the core publications, right? And then you never need to pay anything else. And that's the challenge that the RP industry faces, and it's the core problem behind all of this. And I thought that was a really, really smart take on it. Yeah, I think I think the important thing that I took I took away from this it wasn't stated, but I think that we need to remember as gamers, people who hopefully love the game and want to keep playing the game and make new friends and play with new people. Is that you know we all we all we hear monetization and it's always in a negative way, mm -hmm. right? We people take it in a negative way, but without that monetization, there's stagnation, and the big fear you know in the '90s and the 2000s, even in the tens, was that the game was dying, that everybody. The gaming population was getting older and would be dying out and there would be no new players and no one to play with. And if there's no new players and no one to play with, there's no new products. There's no new additions. There's no adding vibrancy to the game. So, you know, when we hear monetization, there's a natural reaction to to think of it in a negative way. But it's it's there is a positivity to it that we tend to overlook, but we shouldn't. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean. You want the people who are working on your favorite game to have a job <laughs> and, and a good job, right? Mm -hmm. And and we've seen years with many layoffs and it hasn't been you know widely advertised. It's been discussed that layoffs were on the table, but a round of layoffs just went through uh, Hasbro and Wizards mm -hmm. and the D&D team was essentially untouched. You know, no mm -hmm. big name designers are gone. No medium name or small name designers are gone. 
Uh, everybody kept their job. And that's what happens when the game is doing well. And it's what we as fans mm -hmm. should also want, right? So the monetization thing, I agree with you 100%. You know, we have to sort of take it in context and think, you know, we do want people to have jobs. We don't want just Wizards to have jobs. We want we want the folks at Wizards to to maintain those jobs and and keep the D&D team hopefully growing and, and strong and, and, yeah, doing well. Joe Manginello is developing a D&D TV show, question mark. Uh, comicbook.com is reporting the actor and D&D fan Joe Manginello discusses the previously reported documentary involvement, but also says that I work for Dungeons and Dragons and, quote, I'm developing a TV show for them. So is, that's above and beyond the other show that we've been reporting on, I believe. I, we so, think so, right? So it, it'll be really yeah. interesting to see what this is. You know, he has a stated love of Dragonlance and has at times dropped hints about working on a script for Dragonlance. So who knows what this is? You know, is it a partnership? Is it something where directly Wizards is doing this? It's hard to say. Um, the video is is a, a, a it's by a company that's making his has made his gaming table, and it's worth checking out this video because just it's unbelievable. The new gaming room. If you thought his old gaming room was cool, which it was. Now he's got this special custom table he's setting up. And I mean, it is quite the, the thing to look at. But um, but then also he he drops these little bits about you know what he's been involved in in the past and what he's doing now. And so that's where this comes from. And comicbook.com had the, the story. So we have a link to that as well. And in a little bit of sadder news, uh, Wizards of the Coast has fired the last remnants of their Latin American localization team. Speaking of monetization and mm -hmm. needing it to continue, um, they have been talking more. Wizards has been talking more about, you know, expanding its reach into other parts of the world other than the United States. And, you know, they've been promoting their reach into Latin America for magic, but also for D&D. &D. And in 2022, most of the team was fired to cut costs with the Brazilian team remaining. But this week that ended as well. Yeah, it's a real shame because we've seen um, how some areas like Japan seems to really have some great localization efforts that have really recently happened by giving more power to that team to more and more autonomy where they can run their events their way uh, and create um, giveaways and, and things to attract to the, the Japanese audience in ways that speak to the Japanese audience directly, right, versus sort of being handled on the high. And so getting rid of this team, which has happened, you know, slowly over time, but um, means that you're back to having a central office try to devise what the plan is for Latin America. And I, and I just don't think that's going to see much success. It, it hasn't seen much success in the past. Um, so I, I, I don't know what, what this will mean, but it, it is very sad for, for those of us who want to see that growth in the region. Um, you know, it leaves us with no answers to how Wizards is going to properly achieve growth there i don't i don't know if they will yeah when you interviewed kyle brink it's funny that you know you brought up that that you know increasing your support for localization your support for gamers around the world and unfortunately that uh, happened not long afterwards so mm -hmm. but you know hopefully maybe this is like one step and the next step in the process is to reestablish localization Somewhere, I, I can only hope that it's yeah. it remains on their radar. It it needs a plan badly, um, and, and yes. the problem is that it, it it's not an easy plan to formulate. Um, <laughs> but I hope someone really comes up with a great plan because 
if you can get, and it's not just Latin America, right? It's, it's places like India, places like China. If you can get a good plan deployed there, uh, the growth possibility, incredible, right? Yep. Uh, you know what's better than the SRD, uh, Teos? I don't know. Tell me, please. The SRD in comma-separated value format, mm. apparently. Uh, Random tasty. Wizard on Mastodon announced that he put the contents of the 5e SRD into a comma-separated value file. Uh, you can follow the link in our show notes to download the file and import them into Excel or any other database that reads a C, uh, CSV file. Uh, very useful if you're building, you know, your own character builder, your own dungeon creation tools, whatever, uh, you can find it there. Yeah, it was. I already did it, um, and I looked it up the other day because I was like, "Wait, what are the gaps at high CRs where there are no monsters?" Oh yeah, these right here. And it's just really easy yep. to just sort it on CR, and there you go. Awesome. Uh, and last but not least, I wanted to give one more shout out to our Grim Hollow Valakin Clans Kickstarter. It is continuing, and it will run through the 18th of March. There are some good stretch goals that have already been uh, unlocked, and there will be more. We did a video, uh, James Hake, Ben Byrne, and I, on everything that's in this. It was a 90-minute stream that's also available on Twitch at twitch.tv, uh, ghostfire underscore official. So you can find it there. Fantastic. I'm back. I backed it already. I'm excited for it. Thank you, Teos. We appreciate it. So let's now get to our main topic for this week on Mastering Dungeons. And that is our first installment of Checking Out Other RPGs. Why are we going to do this? We love D&D, Teos. We do. We love it as a brand. We love it as a lifestyle. We love it as a game. And we love ourselves some fifth edition. Mm. But in order to understand why we love this game so much, we think it's important as game designers, especially to look at what works and what doesn't, not just in fifth edition, but in other games. What do other games do that that fifth edition D&D could do? or could do but decides not to do for a very specific reason, we want to look at all of those questions through the lens of other games. Yeah, And so we are going to do just that. Yes, we are. And I, you know, I was always surprised by this uh, in my early days of gaming, where I would play D&D and think, this is great, I don't need any other game. And then someone would say, hey, look, Shadowrun. And I'd say, okay, I'll try that for a bit. And then I'd go back to D&D and I'd be like, I'm going to use some of those ideas that I learned. Right. And every game I played was like that. It would help me increase my appreciation of what D&D offered. It would give me new tools and new understandings of how to use what D&D provided. And it made my game better every single time, maybe a better GM, because now I knew how to hit things from different angles. So, yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm excited and we're going to start with this pretty bad boy right here. With that game right there called Shadow of the Demon Lord. So we're going to start with this game for a few reasons. Uh, the first reason is it's a really good game. Uh, it does a lot of the things that D&D does, but it does it in a different way, especially in terms of campaign progression and character progression. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to look at that specifically. In later episodes, 
we may get very far afield of the sort of D20 sorts of games, but we wanted to start in a place that was sort of familiar, but also a little bit different. And speaking of a little bit different, <laughs> I'm going to let Teos uh, yeah, give, yeah. give you so, the, so the gory you, you details. Know, you can tell from the, the cover, uh, this is a, a dark game. This is a, a death metal RPG in a number of ways. Um, and so we can provide a bit of a content warning up front. We're going to be reasonable. Uh, we will do our best. Uh, but the game is dark and it has some horrifying, gross concepts that you may enjoy greatly, as many of my friends do, or as other of my friends, you may find that that is a complete turnoff to you. Uh, what's nice is that you, do, you don't have to use those parts. I don't in my games, uh, but mm -hmm. you should be aware that they are in there, right? So things about entrails and body parts and things like that, like that is found in there, uh, just mm -hmm. like any kind of horror movie of that kind might have. So it's, it's good to know that that is the tone of the game. Um, Rob is working on a version of the game that won't have that aspect to it. So that'll come out probably this year. Um, so that may be another option if you, you know, don't even want to open a book that has that. But again, we're going to be reasonable about this, but we may, you know, say things like the word entrails here and there because it, it's, yep. there's a lot of it. And, and so Teos mentioned Rob and the Rob we're talking about is Robert J. Schwalb, who is the writer and designer for this game. We could talk for days about all of the things that Rob has worked on in the RPG industry. Uh, fifth edition D&D, &D, Rob was one of the lead designers for that game. So that's where we can start. And yeah. he, but he also did a lot of work on 4E and 3E D&D, &D, Warhammer Fantasy, um, so many books in that uh Song that of game Ice he worked and Fire on. for Green Ronin, right? All kinds of stuff. But yep. what's yep. really... True 20, what, Star Wars. Yep. What I think makes this game amazing, right, as a, as a start when comparing to 5e, is that this is basically when Rob's working on D&D &D and he's going like, yeah, okay, let's have a team meeting about this. You know, here's where we decide to go as a team. He's thinking, I would go in this other direction. And this book is his other direction, right? He, this is what he wishes 5e was in many ways, right? What he wish it, how he wishes the engine ran of fifth edition and so it's really cool to see that because it, it's it's a set of innovations for your game yeah you know, that he yeah. is putting together into this harder death metal setting that he loves right right and and it's those innovations in the mechanics that i really want to focus on because you know we have seen and will continue to see versions of 5e that make the slightest tweaks and call itself a new game. And in some yeah. senses it is, in some senses it's not. This is not 5e. This is not any edition of D&D. &D. This is its own game. Uh, and it's also worth noting that Rob is pol prolific in terms of writing content. So if you end up liking Shadow of the Demon Lord... There is a bevy of <laughs> adventures, expansions, variants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The value uh, of so, his Kickstarter. I mean, it just, those yeah. of us who joined his Kickstarters, you just kept getting emails with the latest source book or add on or what. And it was unbelievable how quickly they came out, how voluminous it all was. So, yeah, every part of the game from the core, the core stands on its own. 
but you can yeah. endlessly delve into all the things he provides often at a very, very low price. Yep. So the setting of the game, as Teos mentioned, it's a role-playing game set in a fantasy world's final days. So reality is fraying as time and space unravel. The laws governing what's possible and isn't are weakening. As a result of this deterioration, threats from beyond the universe intrude, vile demons spawned in the endless void, hungering for utter destruction of all things. Where they tumble free into the mortal lands, they bring death and doom to all. So there is a definite theme to this, and it's a theme of darkness. It's a theme of death. It's a theme of everything falling apart. But yeah, this the is mechanics, one where like oh. every heart, every piece of art, right, will have someone's face looking worried. <laughs> and mm -hmm. it may be because right. of what's about to happen, what they just imagine will happen in their daily lives, or because a thing is happening to them in the art itself. Um, you're right. That's it's that kind of feeling of uh, I mean, if you're watching Last of Us on TV, it's like anybody there who just expects a bad thing to happen. Right. You are you are on those kind of you, you, the end is ahead. Uh, it, it's mm -hmm. it's a very different setting than most fantasy settings. Yeah. So I, I want to point out two things here. One is I did play test this um, with with Rob once and um I, I liked it. I was a little harsh in my in my review to Rob. And I have apologized to him several times, even though it was just it was just with the playtest group. Um and I have played the game maybe 10 times. The first time I played the official game, it was with a DM other than Rob. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, our party formed, we got through the whole adventure. It was like, oh, okay. I was sort of getting a feel for the mechanics as in, as they were in the final version. And the next nine times I played were, were all with Rob. And it was all TPKs before like the end of the second hour um, with just horror. And and it talks right in the, the opening, the introduction about the full Schwalb. So the full Schwalb is like completely grotesque, horrible death everywhere you're if you don't run away from the encounter you're not going to survive um the game itself is not like that though the game itself you know has the ability to actually play a full campaign yeah so we're gonna we're gonna talk now about the mechanics and we're gonna talk about what what a campaign in the shadow of the demon lord might look like yeah and why this is awesome right and regardless of, of the yeah. setting and what you want to do uh you can take these elements and 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 bring parts of them into your game or, or, or yeah, riff off of these concepts. Yeah. So how, how, how are the concepts and mechanics similar to D and D? Well, let's talk about character creation. So the first thing you do is pick your ancestry. That's a quote right from the character creation. So think of, think of race from D and D, but the ancestry determines a little bit more and a little bit less mm -hmm. than what you would get for a D and D race. Because your ancestry determines your attributes. And there are four attributes, your strength, your agility, your intellect, and your will. Scores can range from 1 to 20. And the modifiers, the pluses for yeah. those scores, go up by 1 for each point over 10, so rather no than once for every matter. 2 points. Right. Yeah. 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 Now, most ancestries, when you when you select your ancestry, will give you your attribute somewhere generally between 9 and 11. 
So like, you know, a human might be 10, 10, 10, 10 in those. And an orc might be a little less intellect, a little more uh, strength or 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 whatever. Um, but the game also allows you to one for one, subtract one from one attribute to um, to increase one in a different attribute. So you are able to tailor that um, in 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 any way you see fit. Uh, now, here's my question, Teos. You know, we've we've all been through the orc. Why do they get a penalty to intellect or, or to yeah. intelligence or charisma? D and D needs to get rid of that. This game does that. Is is this a, is it okay here? I, I'm I'm not up on my, uh, you know, outrage or. I, I, I just mean, I I don't I don't know. So I mean, it no, it's so it's you know it depends on where you are on this issue, right? The, the idea is right. that if I say that an orc starts with strength eleven, agility ten, intellect nine, and will nine, right? I am saying all orcs do that. And, but then I'm allowing customization. Right. So there's a little bit of both here, right? There is that idea okay. that this is sort of your archetype. Mm -hmm. Every orc is, however, making choices that make it different. But we're saying that overall, this is how they trend, right? So okay. there's a little bit of both here. Um, I think that it, it yeah, the, we don't want to delve into this issue too deeply, but that that no. is a, an issue that that is worth pondering as to whether the game should have that in there or not. And to, and to mm -hmm. what what benefit you gain out of it versus what negatives you get out of it is probably the easiest way to, to summarize that issue. OK, no, that that's yeah. fine. I, you know, I if we're going to talk about these other games, let's talk about everything in the game. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I just I just want to get it out there. Uh, ancestries also give you your size, your speed, and your power, power being like your magical abilities. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an ancestries like goblin, orc, clockwork, as well as your typical fantasy races of, of human, dwarf, etc. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that games often do. They'll play with balance a little more. And Rob's smart, right? He, he knows balance. It's not like he doesn't. He knows it as well as anybody. But the clockwork, mm -hmm includes the fact that you have a key somewhere in your body that isn't easy for you to access and you can wind down. So there are conditions mm -hmm. under which you check to see whether you just stop working and you just, you know, yeah. cease to move. And that is very different from a Warforged, right? This is the kind of thing you expect right. in a world that's breaking down. Like, yes, there's clockwork people, but you know, this can happen. And I've had that happen because I like playing clockwork a lot. And all of a sudden, you are not moving and someone has to come over and give you a crank to get you back up. And, and that counters some of the other things that you get. Uh, but it is a major hindrance. Right. And it's just but that that's an example of where the story of it does really rise. Right. And does really help you tell great stories. And it's, it's part of the fun. Yep. So the abilities that you have um, are are corresponding in the most part to those attributes the strength agility intel intellect and will so for example um your strength is equal to your health now some ancestries may say health plus one or strength mm -hmm. plus one is your health or strength plus two depending uh but for the most part strength is equal to your health agility um is is your defense score unless you are wearing armor and then it could be replaced by the armor or could add for lighter armor could add a little mm -hmm. to your defense. Um, your perception score is equal to your intellect score and your will attribute 
is your insanity maximum. And then will and intellect are also both used with spell casting. So, you know, sim- similar to D&D, but different from D&D in the mm-hmm. sense that how these scores are created are simplified down. You don't have to worry about proficiency bonuses. You don't have to worry about adding these extra bonuses. The score is it, or the yeah. score plus one is it. Yeah, and then talk about differences, measuring distances in yards. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I mean, we, we in D&D, you think in five feet. Mm-hmm. So what this game does is really breaks it down into yards, where in a D&D game, your character, if it's a medium-sized creature, would control a five-foot square uh, on a grid or, you know, in the theater of the mind, would control five feet around it. In this game, everything is in yards. So you control a one yard or three feet area instead of five feet. So it it just changes the scale yeah. a bit. But since the rest of the game just moves everything into that yards rather than five feet, it really sort of equals out in the long run. And in some ways, it's clever because what it's doing is it's it's abstracting a little bit by giving you a measurement that you may not exactly have in your brain. Uh, the way you might understand five feet and, and look at maps mm-hmm. and grids and so on, it means that you are, are making a little more of a judgment call versus an exacting measurement, right? Oh, it's five mm-hmm. yards away. You know, it's it's some number of yards. You know, it's it's far. It's close. It's that kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? Yep, yep. So one term I'm going to bring up now, and I'm probably going to bring up in every game we do, is something called game loop. Mm-hmm which is what happens from turn to turn how does the the resolution of an action at the start of your turn play all the way through to the end of your turn and then reset the game so in in dnd you know the game loop is you have a certain number of actions or bonus actions or movement or reactions you say what you want to do if there's a need to resolve it randomly, you roll the die, you add your number, you compare it to a number, you resolve that, and then you move on. So that's the loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this game, the loop is similar. You're going to be saying what your action is. If you have other types of actions, like free actions to load your weapon, uh, movement, and so on that that's the loop play loop is similar you ha- one person takes a turn you resolve all of that then the next person takes a turn uh however th- there will be some differences which we are about to go into yeah. um, when we talk about these mechanical differences so you want to talk about the first mechanical difference there Teos? yeah i mean one is boons and banes and this is a very clever take on the concept of advantage or disadvantage and if you know we often talk about how advantage and disadvantage are heavy right it's re-rolling a whole d20 uh, because it's trying to replace sort of all the modifiers that you might have had in the game and if you have any number of them they cancel out right so you can have three advantage one disadvantage and they just cancel here instead a boon or bane is a d6 added to the roll or subtracted from it depending on whether it's a you know advantage or a boon or a bane uh, and you can get multiple so i might say well the target is cloaked in shadow so you have two banes and what that would mean is you'd roll 2d6 and you would only take the highest result so it's increasing the chances of a number being big uh, that would then affect the roll more greatly so, mm-hmm. but I might say, hey, you have two banes because they're cloaked in shadow, but a boon because your friend is helping you. 
So now I subtract it out, which leaves me with net one bane. So I roll one d6, and I would subtract that from my roll because it's a bane, and I might miss because of it, or I might still hit. But because these are smaller effects, but I'm increasing the percentage chance of the number being a bigger effect, right? Then I'm capping it. And, and so it, it's a really nice effect that you can add more often. And, and, and the math of it matters, right? So I might have, I'm going to do a thing that has two banes, but I'm going to do something else that gives me that, that removes one of them, right? Or think, it, it, it causes you to engage with it because it has this math to it. Um, whereas advantage and disadvantage yeah. just kind of end, right? Right, and it, it it cuts down on the swinginess of the game. If you're rolling with disadvantage, right, that second die could be anywhere from a twenty to a one, and so you know your your chance of hitting could go down drastically depending on that second die and how low it gets. Yeah. Whereas with with a bane, even if you roll a six, if if you were you know at at a plus enough to hit that really won't throw things off that much. Right. So it sort of flattens out that swinginess of, of advantage. Yeah. And because it's smaller like that, it means that you can do it more often and you can have more fun with it. Right. So that's where mm -hmm. taking the higher ground or leaping down onto someone, you know, though you can get into more of this, encouraging your players to do neat things. And when I've played shadow of the demon Lord, that happens a lot where people come up with ideas and that leads mm -hmm. to more of these boons and banes flying around. Um, and a lot of the spells or special features you may have, you know, sort of feet type stuff will give these banes or boons in different situations. And, and that's mm -hmm. a fun currency to play with. Yeah. And there are optional rules later in the in the book that say if you're the player and you have a bane, you can say, I don't want that bane. But if you succeed, you're giving the DM some freedom to mess around with you. And the same thing with a boon. Mm -hmm. right? You can drop the boon and roll. And but and if you miss, you still get some benefit from it. So you're you're sort of playing with that more yeah. narrative storytelling, you know, succeed with with a complication or fail forward element to the game, which I like as well. I mean, initiative is another really cool area, right? Yeah, initiative. This this messes a bit uh, with the game loop in terms of a full round of play rather than just the individual turn. So rather than rolling for initiative, this game has fast and slow turns. And this works really well because of the simplicity of the game and the lethality of the game. So what happens is when combat starts... People who just want to take a fast turn go first. And a fast turn is just an attack without a move, or I think in some cases, yeah. very specific sorts of attacks. So any, any character, yep, any player character who wants to take a fast turn can go first. They do their fast turns. Then when all the players who want to take a fast turn have acted, then the, the DM, the, the game master takes monsters and any monster that's going to take a fast turn goes. Yeah. Then when all the fast turns are done, the characters who were going to take slow turns get to act in whatever order they want. So they do. And then the monsters who need to take a slow turn, they do their thing. So players are going first, but only fast turn players yeah. and then so on. And, and this is good because the game is a little more lethal. So that sort of, um, 
that mm-hmm. sort of coordination may be necessary, but it doesn't bog the game down so much. Like if you were just like anyone go, then you get this tactical discussion that goes on too long. So I, I think it strikes a very good balance. It's really clever. And and when you play it, it really works surprisingly well to also take away from the detriment of when a game is a little simpler. And this this game at times feels a little bit like, you know, basic D&D in that sort of sense of just hit it with your axe, you know, and, and do that over and over again. But these kinds of things of like, well, I'm just going to take an attack so that I can try to drop that thing now even though I kind of wish I could do a more complicated turn, but I'm going to go fast so I can go first and I can take it down, right? Um, or I'm going to go fast just to get to them, and, and so they'll attack me and not my friend, right? That kind of decision leads to these actions happening very quickly. And it's very easy for the DM because rather than saying, what'd you roll for initiative or whatever, you just say, okay, players, fast turns, who's going to take a fast turn? And then they just, you know, two people might speak up and one of them decides to go first and you're off to the races and you're done. And very quickly, two players are done. And then you decide whether your yep. monsters are going to take faster and that finishes really quickly. And now it's slow turns after that. But half the party goes super, super fast, right? And that's that's a really yeah. a quick wound to that loop happening very, very quickly. Yep. And there's a charge mechanic where you can move and attack in the same round, you know, with with the same turn, but you take a bane to your attack Mm -hmm. if you do a charge, which shows, you know, both the flexibility of this fast and slow turn and the uh, the flexibility of the the bane and boon system. And two weapon attacks is sort of like that, too, or it has some neat choices around that. And it banes is how that it's handling that. Yeah. Um, there are no skills in this game. You just test your attributes. So if you do something strength strength based, you roll versus that. So yeah, you know, I'm trying to climb the wall. If it's under, uh, if it's if it's not a foregone conclusion that you can, you just make a strength test, a challenge roll. You roll the die. You add your bonus, and you're trying to beat a ten. Yeah, uh, which is really there are sometimes. It's, it's- basically yeah. always a 10 right i mean you can change that it, but that's it, it's a strong default yeah the strong default is 10 unless you're rolling against something's defense or going up against someone else's strength like in, in a contest and then yeah. you would roll against that but it it helps keep the system very clean yeah. and you know what number you're rolling against all the time and how do you handle variations you handle it with boons and banes rather than changing that challenge rating and it's a neat inverse way of thinking that rather than say well the dc might be 15 because it's a hard wall instead what you'd say is the make it a roll uh but you have a boon you have a bane so the dc Mm -hmm. would be 10 but you might have more banes right it's so crumbling and you're getting shot at you have two banes on the roll right rather than say the dc is 25 and that's a really interesting way to, to to go about it i'm not saying i've never seen someone change the dc from 10 but it in general it's 10 and then it's whether there are banes or boons associated. Yep. Uh, there's also insanity and corruption. So again, content warning. I know that we're trying to get the concept of insanity out of the game, but it's a part of the game. Yep. And, and this came out in 2015, and, right? So just like fifth sure. edition includes madness yep. rules, this game does exactly. as well. I know that Rob is working on changing that for his his yep. next version. For sure. For sure. And I'm looking forward to that new version, by the way. And there's also a corruption because this is a dark game. And so dark actions have consequences. Each time you get a corruption point, you roll a D20. 
And if it's below your corruption score, you roll on a table filled with joyful occasions, such as horrible things happening to certain parts of your anatomy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that's where we get into uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord <laughs> territory. Yes. Uh, we have pr- professions. So when you, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of wrap a lot of this up together yeah, here. Uh, when you start the game, you choose your uh, heritage and you choose or your ancestry and you choose your profession. You get two professions, which are a little bit like a background, but, but with less prescription and, and more freedoms. Yeah. So those are the two things that you have when you start the game. Your professions could be like academic, criminal, commoner, martial, religious, whatever. And there's also a personality section. There's lots of tables here to help you build your character if you want to roll on them. Can I just um, add, But you John, can also just choose. Yeah. What I like about this personality section is rather than trying to do what 5e does with lots of these sort of like almost like prescriptive things that you should then hit off of, it asks you mm-hmm. questions about the nature of your character and is more about yeah. you thinking through what your character is like rather than these, you know, ideals, bonds, whatever is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the professions yeah. you can use and play at any point, you can sort of, you can at any point say to your, to your GM, Hey, um, you know, I have this particular criminal profession. Can I use that to get a boon on this role? Sure. Right. Yep. And that's one of the benefits of having a bit of a simpler character creation process is that you're since you're not asking all of these other hard questions it's easier to ask these easy questions like what do you think of this you know aspect of your character based on what you have so far um it's a little bit easier for a a player to cogitate on that when they're not having to choose you know between 70 different spells yeah. at at first level uh there's also equipment that you get when you uh create your profession and your uh heritage is it ancestry or heritage i keep forgetting I think it's ancestry um ancestry. and what i like about equipment is yeah. you basically roll on wealth and like in D you get coins right and then you buy stuff mm-hmm. here you roll and that roll of 3d6 determines your wealth level and your starting equipment package and it can be that you just don't have a lot right and 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 yeah. it's so you may not have rope, right? Not everybody has rope. And and I, I like that for what the simplicity of this game. It just gives you this very, you know, simple thing. You are at this level and here are the things you start with. On you go, right? Yep. Yep. So when you begin a game of Shadow of the Demon Lord, you have no level. You just have your heritage and your profession and you start playing. You're essentially zero level. Then after you finish your first adventure, you become level one and you choose a novice path. And that novice path is going to be your basic class. So you think magician, priest, rogue, warrior. There's only four, but that's where your adventure has taken you. And it says mm-hmm. right in the text, right? if you are hitting things with a club, you might want to take the warrior path. If you are trying to do these other things, you might want to take the the magician path. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about right creating your character through play, yeah. doing the thing that you're that you have your character do regardless of what skills or powers or traits they have. You you just this is what you want to do. So have the character have the rules that that character follows do those things. 
And I think it's interesting because I think Rob worked on one of the box sets for like third or fourth edition where it had that choose your own adventure style of building your character. And he may have gotten gained some experience from doing that to bring that into uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord. Yeah. And and so these feel somewhat like classes and you might, you know, as a first level character think, oh, okay, you know, this is going to be like D&D. But no, that's not the case. Mm-hmm because of the number of levels and what each level will advance. And that is, I think, one of the most fascinating aspects of this game and something that I would, I think a lot of RPGs should be taking a hard look at this and the effect it has on your campaign. Um, Mm -hmm. So each level, if you look at the table of leveling up, different things progress. So for example, level four, is the second and last time you will advance your ancestry. So, you know, D&D tells you you're a dwarf and then forgets about it forever, unless you happen to take some feat that's like dwarfy related, but you, you're done, right? That's all. But in, in Shadow of the Demon Lord, you get to level four and you can say, well, I'm going to pick my ancestry's advanced feature or I'm going to learn a spell. And so everybody gets that choice at level four to, to delve into that. Similarly, mm-hmm. level one and two are a novice path are uh, from your novice path so you can be advancing as a magician at level one and level two but they have choices to them as to what you're getting and a lot of times it's from a set of what almost feel like feats or spells that you're picking from from to, to add to your character uh, but they have a wide latitude in what you choose and levels three six and nine you have your expert path showing greater focus and knowledge than novice and those are things like I want to be a warlock or a scout or a spellbinder where I bind things. I'm an artificer. I'm a druid, right? So, and, and again, you have choices at each of those levels of what kind of features you want to pick from those groupings so that you're not just going up a level progression of, say, being a magician. You are really making these very different choices to which aspects of your character you want to advance. Mm-hmm. And when you advance them... They advance you in the things that you need to be good at for that thing. So you could totally be a warrior as a novice and get those warrior things at one levels one, two, five, and eight. But for your expert path, you could go off in a completely different direction and you would gain the things that you need to be good at that path. So you could definitely take a path of like all fighter and do all the fighter things at the novice, the expert, and the master paths. Or you could diverge a bit. But it so that's a way of multi-classing DD yeah. wise uh in DD parlay parlance, but uh but also not suffering as much from it from like minimization of right. the synergy of them as as it you know it that solves it a bit here. And that's because these features are grouped within their own sort of bands right so no novice path choices are all balanced with each other right so uh, and one of the things even more on the multi-class aspect is you know say at level one i could take magician but at level two i could take priest mm-hmm. right as as my novice path rather than advancing with another magician choice um and mm-hmm. so i know one of the characters i really had fun playing through in a shadow of the demon lord campaign was an orc who was a grave digger as their profession so I started as a warrior and took my, you know, ancestry feature that gave me kind of cool orc stuff and I'm very battle ready. But then I took spell things that basically magically enchanted my shovel that I fought with, right? 
So my shovel started growing in power, making me a better warrior. But it was magic things, not warrior things that I was choosing. Right? And that was kind of fun. Yep. So that sort of progression is how the game expects you to go through the campaign. And as you probably realized as we were talking here, we talked about levels 0 through 10. What about beyond that? There is no beyond that in Shadow of the Demon Lord. After each adventure, you level up. So the campaign is meant to wrap up after basically 11 sessions of play. With the understanding that this is a campaign where the world is dying around you. Mm -hmm. So there is this clock that's ticking and your time is limited. And I think Rob probably understood well that even for D&D games, the average campaign length is something like seven sessions. That's the length that most campaigns last. Just because people run out of time, schedules, yeah. interest. So to set this limit at 11, to get through a full campaign, I think is brilliant. Yeah, I think it it makes it much more likely for people to say, hey, it's 11 sessions, it's 11 weeks. If we play weekly, that's less than three months. We can play a full campaign and see how this game works. Yeah. And I love that idea. I think Rob also mentioned that he said, you know, this probably won't be the only RPG you play, which mm -hmm. is very emotionally smart of him, right? To know that most people buy a game like D&D and play it forever, and then they might delve into something else, and then they come back to D&D, and that's just the reality of how people do things. So write for that. Write the, this cool, neat experience you can have. You can play, and, and we should say, you normally level in Shadow of the Demon Lord whenever you do something significant, which is about once a session. So you could play mm -hmm. 10 times, and you've got your Shadow of the Demon Lord experience, a full campaign, and you've seen all this awesome stuff that's happened with your characters, and, and, and there's a lot we haven't gone into, right? Like there's master paths at level seven and 10, you know, some additional things like that. But, mm -hmm. but you can have this really cool experience in a relatively short period of time and then go on and try a different RPG. And the, that, that, the game is written to embrace that, you know, to understand mm -hmm. that. Right. And on the game master side, there's a lot of things that we haven't talked about. Um, you know, the world, the monsters, how, how all of that works. You know, if you've played D and D, you you get you get the gist of it. Um, but you you can run different kinds of campaigns. There are different organizations within this world that could affect things. So you could run a short campaign, and then have a different game master step in, or you know, completely change the way that the world is working and run another one, and tell a different story, but still have the fun that the game provides the, a very focused um well-tailored game for the kinds of campaigns that it is meant to support yeah yeah it's it's, it's a neat setting to this whole their their uh, land of earth has you know a wild map and and neat ideas yeah. and it doesn't go overly long right it gives you the things you need to get started there are other right. supplements that give you more um but they tell you mm -hmm. enough about you know what what are the the major elements of the setting and the gods and things like that. And there's a bestiary full of all kinds of horrible beasties that tend to play, you know, in a more of a D&D basic kind of way. You know, they're not overly complicated. They'll have a, you know, a fun thing or two they do, but it doesn't go over the top. And yep. well, the monsters are over the top, but their mechanics right. are fairly streamlined. Right. Yeah. The only thing that's lacking from the, the hardcover main book, unless I missed it, is, is a beginning adventure. Mm-hmm. 
the and I'm sure that there are dozens, if not hundreds, of them out there. Uh, but with for a game that specifically says after zero level, after you play this introduction, that's when the game actually starts because you've formed your party and you know what's going on. Uh, the book gives you examples of zero level play and how to create an adventure. But I would love to see it from the mind of Rob Schwalb. This is the adventure that I would run for every beginning group to give them these opportunities to differentiate their characters from each other during play and to sort of don't want to use the word funnel because that's a DCC word, but, you know, funnel them into the different directions that the game expects them to go to, to make that a little more clear for first time game masters of this, uh, of this game. And I would recommend a series called uh, tombs of desolation, um, which ran at winter fantasy. Uh, it is not over the top in its level of, of, you know, horror grossness. In fact, it almost has some sort of heroic elements in some ways while questioning the authority of the land. Um, and then, it, and it's a two part series that plays, takes place in a town and then takes you to a, and then the third part, you go to the desert um, to sort of figure out where the evil is coming from. And that plays as a nice bridge between a D and D feel and a shadow of the demon, mm -hmm. demon Lord feels. So if, if you don't want to go full Schwab on your first start, I recommend this tombs of desolation campaign series. It's on drive through. Um, very easy to get into. It'll, it'll, it'll feel, it's a nice way to start with it. With it. Um, but there are lots of zero level or low level adventures that you can start with as well. But that's a nice start. Who who wrote the de the Desert of Desolation or the... The Tombs of Desolation? Yeah. Uh, that's Do you a remember? Good... I don't. I thought Jerry it was Jerry. It. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah. I, I, okay, cool. Awesome. Thank you for that because... I have three uh, three steps of after reviewing a game like this. It's either mild interest, definite interest, or I need to run this campaign right now. And after doing after you know playing with pregens and playing a few one shots and reading this book now, I'm at level three. I'm at I I want to run a full campaign of this um, right now. So yeah, I'll, that's, I'll find that's a... my highest recommendation. I will put a link in the show notes. Tombs of Desolation it also ended up being a um, sort of extra setting piece. So that's the product mm -hmm. I found when I looked it up, which is written by Rob. But I'll, I'll find that uh, adventure series and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, cool. Thank you. So we have talked about our first non-D&D RPG game, Shadow of the Demon Lord by Robert J. Schwalb. Uh, you can find it at his website, I'm sure, or Schwab Entertainment or Drive Through RPG. And anything else to say in summary here, Teos? No, it's a fantastic game. I mean, just really top-notch design, really neat innovations. It's so far from a fantasy heartbreaker concept where it's basically just D&D, right? This is you can clearly see the links to D&D and in fact the 5th edition design, but it's it's its own RPG really stands on yep. its own has its own benefits great all right so thank you so much for listening and thank you to the patrons who help us keep these lights on thank you to our master of dungeon supporters um it, the master of realms supporters get a special shout out in our show notes so thank you so much 
And we like to give our Masters of the Multiverse patrons their own special shout out. So here we go with Graham Ward, James Walton, Matthias Valero at Twin Portals, Joe Tyler, Krishna, I'm going to say his name different each week, Simonse, Chance Russo at Dragon Russo, Falcon Neil, Sean Molly, Sean, it's great to know that you're out there, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Travis Lee, Brian King, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Robin Dermy, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Steve Bissonette, and Craig Bailey. Thank you so much for your support. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash masteringdnd. Also, if you get a chance, leave some reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to us via YouTube to see our lovely countenances. Teos, where can people find you? Ooh, find me at alphastream.org. Um, and from there, it'll lead you to all the fun places. Sean, what's the best place to hunt you down? Uh, you can get me on Twitter at Sean Merwin. The podcast is at Mastering D&D on Twitter. I'm also at Mastodon. Uh, and I'm also, and the show is on Mastodon at Dice.Camp. You can join our community and ask questions on Patreon, or you can leave comments on the Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel. So we have survived our first level of fighting against the Demon Lord. What are we going to do now? <laughs> we're probably going to have a TPK, Sean. Probably we're going to need a little therapy too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's good. Seek therapy. Yep. <laughs>